today's message is just a continuation and a finalization of something that I've been doing for a, a few weeks now, which worked out well because I'm in my own personal study in Second Chronicles. I'm finishing that up. All 36 chapters I just finished on uh, Friday. And so I wasn't planning on doing this, uh, but since pastor's not here and then we have the guest pastor next Sunday, uh, so we'll all make sure to be there for that. Something really jumped off the page at me. It was one of those rare moments where, you know, I'm in my office and I call Sarah in and I try to share it with her. And uh, it probably meant more to me at that time. You know how it is in your own scripture reading than it, it meant to Sarah. But after dwelling on it, I was just really surprised that I had never seen something like this from the Bible. And so uh, the title of today's message is One Generation Away. And uh, like I mentioned last week or the week before, strong starts and flimsy finishes. And of course, there's a lot of characters in the Bible where we see this, but the inverse is also very true. We've seen a lot of people start pretty weak in the faith and finish strong. You know, the, probably one of the best stereotypical examples of that would be Saul to Paul. Well, today we're doing the opposite of that. These are people that were very zealous, uh, very pious, like sincerely pious in their faith and their love for God. And then things came unraveled at the end. So the two character studies we're going to do today as we wrap up Second Chronicles would be Josiah and Zedekiah. And I was talking to uh, Daniel this morning, and he said, hey, you know, what's the scripture? Are we going to read through it? And I said, man, I wish we could, but it's over 100 verses. And I know that's not, that's not the pattern that pastors set for the church, and I, I love that pattern, to go through an entire um, chapter expositionally and then break each verse down and, and then stay tethered to scripture. We're, we're definitely going to stay tethered to scripture today, as we always do, but... Second Chronicles 34 led right into 35 without a moment's hesitation, and then 35 led right into 36 as the conclusion. So we're going to go through all these. I have it broken down into three neat uh, sections. And then my, my subtitle for today, and this is what really inspired me to want to put pen to paper and just prepare a quick message for Sunday school, is can any good thing come out of Egypt? And, of course, that's a play on word from uh, can any good thing uh, come out from John which is one of the references we're going to get to here. So just by way of introduction, uh, here's a quick breakdown of what we're going to cover today. So although today's look into Second Chronicles technically spans three generations, not just you know one generation away, from Josiah to Zedekiah, there are plenty of examples illustrating the good and evil back and forth in the father-son kingdoms through the Old Testament. And that was true with judges up in the Chronicles. And guys, just as a, a testament to you, because we know that God's word is all important. It's all been preserved at a, a lot of loss of bloodshed. When I got into First Chronicles, Sarah and I really struggled with it because there wasn't a lot of devotional, doctrinal, historical applications that we could really grab onto and apply to our life. But it led into a deeper understanding of Second Chronicles, which became more of a narration of the life and times of the kings through Judah and Jerusalem. So sometimes we kind of have to get through the mud in order to get to our own greener pastures there. So I'm glad that I did because it set a really great foundation. So that whole father-son paradigm of the one generation away from really falling and backsliding can, can be better illustrated nowhere, in my opinion, than Cain and Abel. Um, and then I put here, that apple certainly fell far from the tree. Thank you. <laughs> I wasn't sure how it was going to go out. Of course, we, <laughs> we know it wasn't an apple. We, we don't know what it was. It could have been an apple. It would be a better way to say it. But um, it, was an, it was an apple to Disney, and boy, I believe everything Disney says. So this morning, we're, 
we're looking at the radical contrast uh, juxtaposing Josiah's righteousness, he was a pretty good character, with Zedekiah, you know, two generations removed, Zedekiah's wickedness, along with a surprise guest appearance from Egypt's king. Uh, and that's where we're going to wrap up in part three today. So, uh, as a character introduction to Josiah, right as 34 kicks off, he was a young king. We see a lot of these eight, nine, ten-year-old kings that take power, they take the throne, and a lot of them have a pretty long, successful reign until they don't. Then they're either hunted down by their own people or killed in battle. So in verse, uh, in, in, I'm sorry, in chapter 34, verses 2 through 5, uh, we actually see that Josiah did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. And I, I just realized in all of my excitement to be up here this morning, I have my notes, my references, but I don't have a Bible. So I should probably grab a Bible. <laughs> Will you hand me that? Thanks. This helps. <laughs> I used it while preparing. Uh, all right. Where are we? Second Chronicles. All right, right at the end. So since we couldn't use those, uh, since we couldn't read through the whole passages, I at least want to hit these references. So, 34 verses 2 through 5. I'm sure you guys are already there, hopefully, because I had to go get mine. All right, so it, it reads, um, and he, we're talking about uh, Josiah here, did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. And that's always a good thing as you read through Chronicles. You don't see a whole lot of that. And walked in the ways of David, his father, and declined neither to the right hand nor to the left. So he walked that straight and narrow path. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David, his father. So it wasn't instantaneous. This is a character trait that was built within him. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. Um, verse 4. And they, the people that he had do this, carry out his mission, break down the altars of Balaam in his presence. I love that, that reading there because he actually got involved. Whether they were using sledgehammers or swords or whatever it was, the king actually went with his people that were just tearing these altars down. Uh, that gets me really pumped just to visualize. So he was there with him. And the images that were on high above them, he cut down. And the groves and the carved images and the molten images, what do you do with them? He, he break in pieces and made dust of them. That reminds me of, of what Moses did with the uh, golden calf earlier. And strewed it upon the graves of them that had sacrificed unto them. Man, that's major. And then to finish up in verse 5, as an introduction here to the character, it says, And he burnt the bones of the priests upon their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. Of course, Judah being the nation, Jerusalem being the city where he had set up his, his kingdom itself. But man, that's a savage portrayal of this guy. And I immediately knew Josiah and I would have got along just fine. Uh, man, I love it. So he didn't just give an order from on high or for, from some ivory tower in Jerusalem where he had, you know, inherited his throne from his father who inherited from his father and so on and so forth. He actually got together his guys. We don't know from scripture whether it was, uh, you know, five of these elite engineers or 105 people, but he, he brought them together and he said, here's the plan. I'm clearing my schedule. 
And remember, this is, this is in the eighth year of his reign, he basically came to have a sensitive heart to God, to fall in love with God. And then another four years is really where he said, all right, I'm putting my foot down. We're going to go out there. We're going to crush these things. And we are literally going to turn them into dust. So there was this evolution, for lack of a better word, of his spiritual life and his love for God to where he said, here's what's going to happen. Who's with me? Grab your sledgehammers. Let's go. I love that. That's really cool. He got personally involved in the work. And just to make an application to that with you guys, how much more rewarding is it and how much more respect do you have for someone at your job or maybe even a career that you've had in the past when your boss doesn't just wear the, the white collar and the tie from his office somewhere in a different corporate plant, but he actually is on the floor with you, he's fixing machines with you. If you're a mechanic or an electrician, he's actually mentoring you and showing you what to do. That's how to gain the respect of the people. And he was, Josiah was interested in gaining the respect of both God and the people, and he did really, really good at it. So Josiah is a perfect example of someone fervent in spirit. I mean, he had spirit to spare, but, and this is the one thing I was uncomfortable with because I really wanted to root for this guy, but he was erring in his zealousness. I have a reference here from Acts 18.25, and just for sake of time, I'm going to power through these rather than doing you know, scripture references. If you guys want to flip there, please do. But Acts 18.25, talking about your zealousness, it reads, This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. So this is talking about the coming of age of someone's spiritual life. And what's really phenomenal about this, it doesn't say that he had an encyclopedic knowledge of the scriptures. He carried around the Old Testament in his pocket. This says all that he really knew, all that he observed, and that he personalized was the baptism of John. That's enough. And so this was just one of a million things that jumped out at me because I know a lot of times, and everything that I share with you guys, I'm speaking personally, but I think that we can all relate to this. We will sometimes shrink under our circumstances of trying to share our knowledge of God because through our humility, we fail sometimes. Who am I? You know, I, I'm not the mouthpiece of God. There's someone out there that knows more. I don't want to get involved in a debate with an atheist or, um, you know, I, I'm not the guy to talk about young earth creation. There's a better guy. Out. Let me give you a YouTube link. That's not what God wants from us. He wants us to do what we can with what we have. And that's what we see here, being fervent of spirit. That's a good example of being fervent in spirit. So uh, let's keep reading here. So Joe, I'm going to call Josiah Joe because we have that relationship. Joe set up a theocracy in verse, uh, chapter 34, verse 33, which that's not what God wants. We're going to get to that, a theocracy, basically a, a, a top-down rule um, tethered and handcuffed to a religion in a more obvious way than his predecessors. Because let's face it, a lot of people in the Old Testament tried to set up their own theocracy, which ultimately led... Here's the outcome, to a nation of phony, pious people, not what God wants, and we're going to prove that from the Bible, forced into faking it, but never making it. You guys have heard that phrase, fake it till you make it. Well, if you're faking your love for God, and that's your shaky foundation, your, 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 the sandy foundation that you're standing on, you're never going to make it, because you have to come to it on your own. A governor, a mayor, a city councilman, a president can never point his finger at you and say, worship this God. Because if it's not the God of the Bible and it's not coming internally, if it's more of an external influence, you'll never get there. So let's read that reference real quick. We're already in uh, chapter 34. Verse 33 in chapter 40, or 
34 reads. And Josiah took away all the abominations out of the countries that pertain to the children of Israel. That's a good thing. And made all that were present in Israel to serve. I have this circled, uh, and I had to read it twice before I circled it. I'm going through this, and, you know, the pendulum swing of this entire chapter and, and the character traits of Josiah look great. Man, this guy's doing great work for the Lord. Are they finally going to make that pivot in Israel and Judah and Jerusalem, and they're going to follow after the God of their fathers? Well, no, look at that one word that this all rests upon, and made all that were present in Israel to serve. You can't make someone serve. I mean, we saw that from God's creation of Adam and Eve. Even to serve the Lord their God. What a great mission. We can condone that, but not the spirit behind it. In all his days, they departed not from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. So the Bible doesn't give us deeper context into why they did that. This looks great. There's a huge silver lining here. Even if by force or rule of law, serving God is a good thing, but the intentions behind it might not be so good. So I believe, and I, I've uh, talked about this in the past, that God isn't just interested in his messengers being obedient, but he's interested in the motives of his messengers. And we know that. That's the wood, hay, stubble, and then the enduring riches that are going to come uh, before fire, before the throne. So we want to make sure that when it comes to judgment, that we're sincere in not only our thoughts, but also our actions. And we don't want a, a government leader telling us who to serve and how to serve them. So as Josiah's counselors, we talk, it talks a lot about the messengers here and, and the people in his cabinet, observe his devotion, one of the priests involved in the 100th temple rebuilding attempt, that's an exaggeration, but everyone's trying to rebuild this temple and they keep failing, finds the law of Moses. So they literally find the law of Moses, uh, a book. And we don't know if this is exactly from the Ark of the Covenant. I wasn't able to find that. So uh, I don't want to say that for certain, but whatever it was, whether it was a transcript or a copy, they found the law of Moses. And immediately what they did, whether it was for brownie points or not, they ran to Josiah and they presented it to him. Not only did they present it to him, but they read it to him word for word, expositionally, like we like to do. So um, this profoundly transformed Joe's outlook and actions based on, here's the one thing, and we see this, we're going to read it in verse 14, the wrath of God. So this was a huge reminder to me that there's only two incentives from the beginning of time to the end of time, and that's the carrot and the stick. So who do you serve? What do you devote your time to? Do you operate out of fear, out of de a deficiency of trust, or do you operate out of love and a devotion to someone, whether it's a spouse, whether it's like we talked about before, your career or your boss, you're being a good servant. It's either the carrot or the stick. In my opinion, I believe that he took the wrong view of the law because he basically cleaned up his act, so to speak, based out of the fear of the wrath of God. I don't want God's wrath to abide on me. Well, as we know, and of course, we have this huge advantage of 2,000 years of hindsight. The whole reason for the law is to say that, guys, you can never live up to this, okay? The reason for the law is so that you immediately crumble to your knees and say, is there some sort of a substitution that I can rely on? where it's not about what I do, but it's about what someone did. And we know that's Jesus Christ, of course. So he took, this is really where things start to unravel, and then it affects the next three generations. And since he's the king, it affects the entire kingdom. So let's go to verse 34, 14, and it reads, And when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah, this is who found it, the priest found a book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. 
So this is where they go into the reading, and Josiah's life is radically transformed. Whether for the good or for the bad, my opinion that it's for the bad. So just to wrap up Josiah's bubble of character of who he was before we get into talking more about Zedekiah, his, his um, successor. Rather than Josiah realizing the law was given as a smoke alarm, that our best efforts will never match God's expectations, here's what he does. He doubles down believing in his own works rather than faith alone. I got into a discussion through text, so not really a, a chat, with a, a friend of mine, and uh, some things have, have occurred recently that have made me doubt some of his doctrinal beliefs. And, you know, how do you hash that out? You challenge them and, you know, say, what's your proof text on that? Well, one of the subjects we talked about was by grace through faith alone, period. New paragraph. And it was cool because he was sullen on that, but he definitely errs in a lot of his other doctrinal beliefs. And I even tried to play sort of um, the innocent, unknowing type person. Well, you, you can't just get saved and then go back to your old life. I mean, God wants you to continue serving him or you're not really saved. I mean, he's not going to accept that. And he was really solid on that. But Josiah, I fear, wasn't. And all these things are going to be made known anyways when we get to heaven. So immediately, without a moment's hesitation, when we get right into chapters 35 and 36, we learn about Zedekiah and then a positive influence from Egypt, which I think is really cool. So Zedekiah did that which was what? Evil in the sight of the Lord. It's a word-for-word -word, uh, copy-paste from what we saw over in uh, 34, verses 2 through 5 that we read. He did that which was evil. So let's read it really quick. In 36, this is going to be verses 11 through 14. Here's really all we need to know about Zedekiah. We can kind of fill in the empty spaces later. But in verse 11, it reads, Zedekiah was one and 20 years old when he began to reign, a little bit older. So he should have more maturity. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord his God, and humbled not himself before. Look at this huge advantage he had. Jeremiah the prophet, who was kind of his right-hand man, speaking from the mouth of the Lord. Verse 13. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear, there's that made again, by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart from turning unto the Lord God of Israel. And we'll wrap up here in 14. Moreover, all of the chief priests, not just some, and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord, which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. What a about face. I mean, this is a 180 degree change of course for not only the man of Zedekiah, but the nation of Judah, and more specifically Jerusalem, where they keep trying to rebuild, rebuild, re rebuild, rebuild the temple and failing at it. That's horrible. So all of this great groundwork that Josiah laid from the evil that his father did, the evil that his grandfather did, crumbled and came of none effect within one or two generations. It's awful. So Zedekiah was self-willed and difficult. Because of that, he was a perfect picture of nepotism since his brother, Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him over Jerusalem. He wasn't elected. He didn't inherit it from his bloodline or his dad or grandfather. He was actually appointed to that throne. Unlike, like I was talking about, the dynastic father-son sort of a situation that had come to be over the last 300 years. Because Zed, we're calling Zedekiah Zed now, didn't earn the throne he didn't respect it 
or, and here's the surprising part, his brother. So he didn't respect the power he was given because he never had to ascend to it. He never had to work for it. And the one person you think that he would respect that put him in a place of power, wealth, influence, his own brother, Nebuchadnezzar, who was conquering planet Earth at that time, he didn't even respect him. So this guy was like a cranky little four-year-old. Sorry, Zed. Because Zed didn't earn the throne, he didn't respect it or his brother. And certainly, following along that same train of thought, didn't heed God or give him credit for his rise to power. And that's in uh, verse, I'm sorry, chapter 36, which we're already there, verses 12 and 13, just two back-to-back verses. Let's uh, get through those real quick. So that reads, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord his God, this is just by way of review, and humbled not himself before Jeremiah the prophet, speaking from the mouth of the Lord. So God even sent him a messenger, a true messenger, and he just kicked it to the side, swept it under the rug, and said, I'm going to do what I want to do. And then he also rebelled against the king, Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, we'll stop there for sake of time. But that's really interesting to me because that proves that he doesn't respect anybody but himself. And if you're not worshiping the one true God of the Bible, anything apart from that, you really come down to worshiping yourself and deifying yourself because you have all the answers. You are your own master of your own universe. And then everything unravels from there, which is a different story. So Zeb or Zed received second and probably 102nd second chances in, in his short 11-year reign in Jerusalem. That's not that long, but refused to accept the wisdom from Jeremiah or the many messengers God sent to soften his heart and guide his ways. And I want to prove that too. I don't like to just make claims. Go over to verses 15 and 16 under where we were just reading. It wasn't just Jeremiah. God continued getting in his way. And what did he do? He pushed God out of the way. So verse 15 says, And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words. We see a lot of that today. And misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy or cure. This right here is a, is a fast-forward, picture-perfect example of what Josiah was afraid of, that wrath of God. Well, it came to be, and it came true. So, to finish up now with Zedekiah, his rebellious nature led to the complete destruction of Jerusalem. We don't have a whole lot of time to get into that, but it really talks about the mass murder of its inhabitants. And here's what that all led into a 70-year Babylonian captivity of the survivors, the people who didn't fall under the sword. I mean, they were just taken and and, uh, basically made into slaves. And this is worth reading. So in 36, verses 17 to 21, let's take a look at what that captivity looked like. Therefore he brought upon, this is talking about the wrath of God, remember. Therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion upon young man or maiden, old man or him that stooped for age, he gave them all into his hand. And remember that he is referencing God. So who gave them up? God did. That's the wrath of God. And there was no remedy. Verse 18, And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and his princes, all these he brought to Babylon, 
So it was all for naught. Everything that had been done for the past three generations was stolen and distributed and taken into Babylon along with all the slaves. Verse 19, and they burnt the house of God. They didn't even want to leave that standing and break down the wall of Jerusalem and burnt all the palaces thereof with fire and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And them that had escaped from the sword, they got away, they hid themselves, they got found. So check this out. It says, carried he away to Babylon where there were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. So this lasted a long time. So column A, when we started this morning, we have Josiah going out there on this awesome godly mission, and he's just breaking down the altars, the groves, the high places, the idols. He's tearing them down and turning them into literal dust, the Bible tells us. Column B, just forward a couple generations, we have the people being turned into dust. The house of God, the wall about Jerusalem, that protective barrier. And of course, we can draw so many amazing allegories to that wall of Jerusalem being Jesus Christ. So that protection being taken away from them and then the people literally being taken away into captivity because of poor leadership. It's horrible. So here's the one thing that I made sure I was very solid on this because I wanted to make sure I wasn't just misreading it or, or reading into it. But in, in part three, where we're going to wrap up this morning, God's plan will be done one way or another. We're comfortable with that statement. But here's the thing. However, it'll happen through whomever he decides. And it doesn't necessarily mean that that person is godly or after God's own heart. So let's go right here into the middle in chapter 35. And we'll read these four verses. This will be our, our last um, reference directly from the passage here. So chapter 35, verses 20 to 24, and it reads, After all this, this is right after Josiah died, by the way. When Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Karshemesh by Euphrates. And Josiah went out against him. So Josiah is going out to fight this guy. But he sent ambassadors to him, saying, uh, the king of, of Egypt sent ambassadors to Josiah. Um, what have I to do with thee, thou king of Judah? I come not against thee this day, but against the house wherewith I have war. For God commanded me to make haste, forbear thee from meddling with God who is with me, that he destroy thee not. That's huge. Verse 22, Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself that he might fight with him and hearken not unto the words of Necho from the mouth of God and came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. Here's the thing that stood out to me here. First of all, I wasn't familiar with anything where the Bible painted Egypt in a positive light. And I certainly wasn't familiar with this about it being explained twice. Do you remember when Pastor Tim was talking about uh, We just went through this. Oh, uh, the, the, the old man and the young man, the prophets. I'm glad I didn't completely space out on that one. To where basically the old man said, <laughs> hey, <laughs> I've got a mission from God. Why don't you come on back to my house? You know, we'll make some supper. We'll have a good old time. And what he, the young man who really had a message from God should have said was, no, I'm, I'm, I'm flattered. That's great. I got to do what God told me to do. I got to make haste and I got to be faithful. That's not what happened. 
Well, I actually read through this several times. I compared the Bible with the Bible. I let it interpret itself. And it says here, just these three or four verses we read, you know, you encapsulate that. And it says this was a messenger from God, the king of Egypt. We don't see a whole lot of support for pharaohs over Egypt from God. I mean, this is like the birthplace of polytheism. But the fact is, like I said, however and through whomever God wants, he can accomplish his mission. And to me, that's really encouraging. As the subtitle to this morning ironically mentioned, can any good thing come out of Egypt? Our reference for that was, of course, John 1:46. And Nathanael said unto him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Phil the saith unto, them, unto him, come and see. So that's kind of the play on words. But here's what I, I want to drive home to you this morning. We know Egypt is the cradle of paganism, from sun worship to polytheism and everything in between, including the deification of man, Pharaoh, of course. All of that... And I didn't even mention the 400 years of slave bondage and, of course, the corrupt Alexandrian manuscripts that every, I chose my words carefully, every false Bible perversion comes from the Alexandrian texts. So God doesn't have a whole lot of love for Egypt, the things that are in Egypt or that come out from Egypt, is, is the point I'm trying to prove here. Another co common theme we hear in the reductive or simplified echo chamber of Christianity and I've heard this so many times throughout my life in other churches, is how Egypt is always referred to as below, to the south. And of course, it's okay to take some of these liberties, you know, eisegesis, whatever fancy word you want to use for it, and say, well, God would, would always say things above are what we should seek after, and things below, well, that's representative of death. And that might be true. I'm not saying it's not true. But these, this is the way that God uses a very broad brush to paint Egypt throughout the whole of Scripture from the, from the start to the end. Actually, you want to talk about how he feels about Egypt all the way into the end. He compares Sodom and Egypt in Revelation when he's talking about the coming of man and laying waste to the earth. So that's why I carefully tried to dissect this and make sure that I wasn't reading into it, that it, it wasn't me trying to reinterpret Scripture. But this messenger from Egypt really was approved of by God and sent with his marching orders. So we shouldn't use too broad a brush on any subject when summarizing the Bible where it's not plainly black and white. For example, here are verses depicting Egypt positively. And I, I, I found several, but I, I chose two headliners that I wasn't familiar with, so hopefully these might be somewhat new to you. But Acts 7.22 reads, and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. That's a story that we're all very, very familiar with, perhaps too familiar with. But that one verse, as you take it out of that passage, it doesn't say that it's foolishness. It says wisdom. We know what Moses was used of by God, what he accomplished. So that's a positive light. Well, we're somewhere else that we can look. Isaiah 19 we got two verses, 21 and 22, and that reads, And the Lord shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day, and shall do sacrifice and oblation. So they're actually making sacrifices to God. Yea, they shall vow a vow unto the Lord and perform it. So they're going to be faithful to follow through. And the Lord shall smite Egypt. He shall smite and heal it. And they shall return even to the Lord, and he shall be entreated of them and shall heal them. So it doesn't matter boundaries or nations or peoples. What God wants is for us to entreat unto him, and he's going to be faithful and just to come unto us and heal us. 
spiritual application, of course, is salvation. He's not going to turn us away. He's not willing that any should perish. doesn't matter if it's Egypt or Israel or America. If you forfeit all of the false, ridiculous ideologies and inventions of men, and you just come to God as you are, and you accept his grace from him to you with your faith from you to him, you're golden. You're good to go. So let's wrap it all up. God can and often does use ungodly people to accomplish a godly end result. And Genesis 50, verse 20, really gives us a picture of that. It says, but as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. I love that verse. As the Chronicles wrapped up, we saw God chose not only to use, but approve and speak with and through a king in Egypt in order to complete a mission. While this underscores God's redemptive, long-suffering nature, hopefully we understand it's best to be a godly person to accomplish a godly purpose. We don't want to live our life like Josiah did, trying to take that wrath and run from it. We just want to make sure that we're obedient to his cause, and then we don't have to worry about that because we don't want to live in fear. Final thought, do right in the sight of God. Be available to be used by God and receive godly instruction and at times rebuke unrighteousness. So this is really cool to me. I'm so glad I got to share this. Uh, I love getting excited about the Bible. And this was really, really exciting to me to see that it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, that God can use you. And I hope that he uses you guys. I hope that he uses me in the week ahead and in our lives ahead. So I'll close with a prayer. Thanks. Dear God, thank you so much for making this book so accessible to us, to preserving it, to translating it faithfully with men that were godly, that were trustworthy, that were astute, that were scholars, and that didn't try to wrest your scripture for their own motives. God, we have your word. You promise to preserve it. You don't break promises, and we can hold it in our hands. And for the, the revelations that you showed to me, whether or not this was new to anyone else, it sure helped me this week, and I was very excited with what you had to show me, God. Thank you so much for this privilege that I'll never be unthankful for to stand up here for a few minutes and just share this with uh, others. You're faithful, you're just, you're loving, and like we talked about today, you are long-suffering, God. So I just pray that we will get out of your way of wrath and that we'll be embraced by your way of love. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.